and I'd like to welcome you to episode 334 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions, who is pleased to announce a new service offering, the Compliance Alliance, which is a three-step program to provide you and your team a background into compliance and the FCPA so you can consider how your product or service fits the needs of a chief compliance officer. It includes a intensive training session on the FCPA and compliance, sponsorship of a 30-day podcast series, and in-person training. Each section builds upon the other and provides your customer service and sales teams with the knowledge they need to have intelligent conversations with compliance officers and decision makers. When the program is complete, your team will be armed with the knowledge they need to sell and service every new client. Interested parties should contact myself, Tom Fox, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Today I have with me Lauren Briggerman. Lauren is a partner at Miller & Chevalier in Washington, and she is one of the uh, co-editors of the firm's most excellent publication, Executives at Risk, Navigating Individual Exposure in Government Investigations. I visit with her on the spring 2017 uh, issue, and we talk about the raid by German authorities of uh, Volkswagen's outside law firm in Germany, as well as the company's office of its Audi division, <coughs> U.S. agents conducting a multi-office raid of three Caterpillar offices in Illinois relating to uh, the company's efforts to uh, have a favorable tax uh, rate by shifting uh, money between subsidiaries, how the founding partners at the law firm of Mosek Fonseca at the center of the Panama Papers scandal were arrested by Panama authorities on charges of money laundering uh, related to Brazil's ongoing Operation Car Wash and a corruption investigation, and how the Department of Justice and a trade division raided the domestic shipping container industry trade association and issued subpoenas to numerous companies. All of these issues really turn on or touch upon the exposure of uh, individual senior executives in uh, uh, companies. It's a fascinating report. The uh, uh, report itself is an excellent resource for any chief compliance officer, compliance professional, general counsel, in-house legal person, or senior business executive. I'll link to it in the show notes. The episode comes in in about 25 minutes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have with me Lauren Briggerman. She is a member at the law firm of Miller & Chevalier, and she is part of the team and, indeed, an editor of the Executive at Risk newsletter that the firm puts out on a regular basis. And she's here to talk to us about the Executives at Risk Navigating Individual Exposure in Government Investigations, Spring 27, uh, excuse me, 2017 newsletter. So, Lauren, with that somewhat long-winded introduction, uh, welcome and really appreciate you taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. So, um, uh, I saw a copy of this, and I must uh, reluctantly admit I had not seen this before, uh, but when I read this particular newsletter, uh, frankly, I was just blown away with the uh, amount of information, the quality of information, and how it really focuses on putting uh, information in front of executives. So I was wondering if you could tell me, as uh, one of the editors, uh, what's the purpose of the newsletter, who you're trying to communicate with, and the team that helps put it together at Miller? Sure, of course. So this newsletter came about in 2015, about, I say, the fall of 2015, 
within our white collar group. And the person who had the idea was a member I've worked for for almost 10 years named Kirby Barra. Uh, he does all aspects of white collar, but with a particular focus on representing individuals. And we just kind of noticed in the white collar space when it comes to blogs and newsletters, but no one was really writing about issues that affected corporate executives, uh, particularly related to government investigations and cases that, that might put them at risk for exposure. And so we came up with this idea to draft this newsletter. At the time, we didn't really think too much about how regular it would be, um, but it's gotten a lot of great feedback. And currently... I and Kirby Barra and another colleague, Don Murphy-Johnson, who is also in the White Collar Group, are the executive editors. And then we have a team of, I'd say, about five to ten associates who actually draft what I call the little blurbs or summary articles that go in the newsletter. And what we try to do is track the most noteworthy cases and investigations that would implicate corporate executives in any way, mostly in the criminal space. But, but in all aspects, um, we track charges and guilty pleas and in major investigations. We track noteworthy sentences that might be favorable or unfavorable to corporate executives, uh, policy changes affecting executives. We actually kind of got lucky in the first episode that we came out with was right after the Yates memo came out. So it was a good time to be writing on that judicial opinions affecting privilege and privacy and extraterritorial issues are also really important. So as you know, uh, most of many of my audience, I would say, are corporate compliance officers, chief compliance officers in the compliance function or in the corporate legal department. So I think they are probably aware of, of FCPA type investigations, but this is much broader than uh, FCPA. It's white collar. And frankly, you touch on a lot of different areas that I think compliance practitioners uh, need to be made aware of from as diverse as Panama Papers to tax investigations to cartel investigations to really the full gamut. So I was just wondering if you, you thought there were any particularly noteworthy developments in the, the spring newsletter, if you could just kind of walk us through those. Sure, definitely. So one thing we try to do is bring together a little bit of analysis in the beginning of our newsletter. So at this point, our newsletter comes out quarterly, and we try to look back on, for example, this was the spring. What did we note in the major articles we were writing about? And one thing we noted that was that there were a lot of aggressive tactics being used by prosecutors in the biggest investigations that are out there. So I can highlight for you some of the uh, tactics we've seen in some of these investigations that would be of interest to your audience. First, in the VW emissions scandal, I'm sure your audience is pretty well aware of that um, at this point, because VW has pled guilty in the U.S. and paid a $2.8 billion fine, so it's been all over the news. But one thing that might not have caught some people's attentions is how broad the scope of the investigation is that it spans not just the United States, of course, but Germany and other jurisdictions. And a noteworthy development in that investigation was that in March, German authorities raided the law offices of Jones Day in Munich. Jones Day is the outside counsel that was hired in 2015 by the company's supervisory board to conduct the internal investigation related to the admissions scandal. 
And I think, Tom, you actually wrote about this on your blog, but it's highly unusual for an outside law firm to be rated like that. Uh, very concerning to us and I'm sure to corporate executives as well. It's not something that we'd ever likely see in the United States, but here it happened in Germany and uh, a court actually upheld the actions of the prosecutors in raiding the office. So BW has since appealed up to the highest court and we will see what happen. happens from there, but it's a very concerning development, at least from the perspective of the defense bar and corporate executives. Yeah, I would say extremely concerning development. <laughs> right, right. And I'm no expert in privilege laws when it comes to Germany, but but obviously that's you know something I think a lesson learned from this case is that corporate executives need to think about investigations far broader than their own corporate office. Uh, you know, you may be sitting in an office in New York or Illinois or wherever, but if there's an investigation going on somewhere else in the world, any tentacle of that investigation could affect you in some way. So the fact that this is involving privileged documents could be is, is very concerning. Do you have any um, sense of what uh, what caused the underlying raid on the law firm's offices? No, we don't really know other than what has been reported in the press. And um, and I think there was only one newspaper in Germany that was actually reporting something about uh, potentially the law firm wasn't handing over all the material that they should have been related to the internal investigation. But I'm not entirely sure at this point. Okay. Uh, and frankly, I found the Caterpillar case almost as concerning uh, because uh, even in my tenure in the corporate world, there were we had many different um, uh, tax jurisdictions, uh, lots of uh, tax transfers, um, uh, transfer pricing issues. And when I saw, read about the Caterpillar investigation, I thought uh, there may be a lot of other American corporations who are in a similar situation. Right. Yes, this is very concerning. So what happened was back in March, the IRS Criminal Investigation Division sent agents out to raid Caterpillar's offices in Illinois, including the headquarters. And in addition, there were agents from other departments, such as the Commerce Department and the FDIC. And I think what was concerning about this is that uh, Caterpillar had been under investigation by a Senate subcommittee several years ago. And it related to this tax strategy where Caterpillar shifted billions of dollars in profits to a Swiss affiliate to get a better tax bracket. Uh, but that Senate subcommittee, even though they raised concerns about those actions, ultimately found that there was no reason to investigate criminally. So a couple of years later, you now have the IRS Criminal Investigation Division raiding the headquarters and also bringing agents from other departments. So uh, clearly the issue wasn't resolved. And it also shows that investigations can be far broader than one particular government agency. And then the other thing that unfortunately doesn't get enough play in the FCPA world is antitrust and specifically cartel investigations. So I was wondering if you saw any uh, significant or at least interesting cartel investigations uh, that you could relate to us. 
Sure. Yeah. And cartel is my area of expertise. So I can talk broader than probably what we have in the beginning of our newsletter here, where we talk about an investigation that was just launched a few months ago, and that's the ocean container shipping industry. So what we learned, and this is just all breaking in the press, this is, you know, companies either issuing press releases or perhaps having to report in their SEC filings that they've received subpoenas. Uh, But the FBI raided a trade association out in San Francisco uh, during the actual association meeting and issued subpoenas for testimony from some of the top executives. And what's interesting about the timing of the raid was that apparently the FBI agents caught this rare window when a lot of these foreign executives were coming in from abroad um, for this international meeting. So they were able to essentially ensnare these corporate executives while they were on U.S. soil to serve the subpoenas. So it really remains to be seen what the scope of this investigation is. It's into the ocean container shipping industry, and the companies who have reported receiving subpoenas are international companies, but my reading of the press is that right now the scope is limited to your U.S. route, so it is considered a domestic investigation. We'll see if that expands from there. Um, but there are interesting trends in the cartel world. You know, the antitrust division is coming off of one of the largest investigations it's ever had, the auto parts industry that began in 2010 and has, is probably in the final year or so. It's really on the wane at this point. And the auto parts investigation has not been replaced by a comparable investigation that's global in scale. So the past year or so have been pretty quiet on the cartel front in terms of prosecutions of both companies and individuals. So we'll see if this ocean container shipping investigation leads to something big. So the uh, one of the things that intrigued me about that was the um, trade show issue, because in yeah. the FCPA world, we had a huge, uh, actually, uh, swoop down and arrest at a uh, gun show uh, in the largest uh, armament trade show in the United States in Las Vegas in 2010. And it was actually led by Lanny Brewer uh, himself. And um, 21 uh, individuals were arrested at the show largely U.S. individuals, but several foreign uh, nationals who had traveled to the U.S. specifically for the show. And I wonder if if that would give pause to uh, any of these kind of large trade organizations to maybe reconsider their uh, venues for their trade shows going forward. Right. And trade shows are always a big red flag. And I read in the press that this particular trade show always had antitrust lawyers present. And that's something that any outside counsel was going to advise for a trade show or if a corporate executive is going to attend a trade show is that you want to ensure that lawyers are present to monitor to make sure that no one is discussing prices, for example. Um, But it goes to show, I mean, again, Lawyers were there at this particular meeting, and the FBI still showed up. So are you really ever safe? And uh, we had a interesting, I thought, um, intersection of several of our friends in the anti-corruption world, the Panama Papers, um, Petrobras, Operation Car Wash, uh, really all kind of came together for development related to lawyers linked to the Panama Papers, 
were arrested in the Petrobras investigation. Yes, that's right. And you are the FCPA expert, but it does seem like the tentacles of this investigation are expanding far broader as well. So, yeah, this happened back in February that Panamanian officials raided the offices of Mossack Fonseca, which is the firm that was at the center of the Panama Papers. And your listeners will probably remember Panama Papers as the scandal in which millions of documents were leaked showing or linking firms um, to offshore accounts. And so the Panamanian authorities arrested the two named partners of the firm, Mossack and Fonseca, based on allegations that they were connected to Operation Car Wash in Brazil. So once again, an outside law firm has been raided. Um, in this situation, there are actually specific allegations that the law firm was involved in misconduct, in particular in money laundering, related to the scandal. You had some uh, interesting cases under the section of uh, noteworthy sentencing, but the, frankly, the one that intrigued me the most was the obstruction uh, sentencing on the tour bus executive. Uh, you usually do not see a senior executive uh, sentenced for uh, obstruction. Here we had a former vice president of the bus company. I was wondering if you just might walk us through this just and rem so we can all remind senior executives uh, the danger for personally engaging in obstruction of justice. Yes, obstruction of justice is never something you want to <laughs> engage in. And I can't talk too much about the details because I have to admit that when I was at my former law firm, I worked on this case representing the tour bus company itself, not the individual, but I, so I can't get into specifics. But my understanding is that uh, <coughs> if he withheld information from, I believe, the Justice Department as part of the investigation. And that's, of course, a big no-no right. when you're doing that. Well, then how about some of the noteworthy sentencing? Because uh, even though these are, once again, not FCPA cases, I found them really interesting and, more importantly, instructive for uh, senior executives. Sure, yes. Um, I'm, and I don't have it off the top of my head because I, I don't have the newsletter, the noteworthy sentencing in front of me. Uh, but I think one of the no most noteworthy ones was the government contract case involving the contractor who abused the Small Business Association program right. and the, the executives who were sentenced for being involved in that, um, there was a very pro-defense result that came out of that case, and, and um, a couple of executives got far lower jail terms than we would have expected, and that's because they were able to successfully argue um, that in, under the guidelines that the loss amount should not be based upon um, uh, the loss to, or, or I'm sorry, the amount of the contracts, which were in the tens of millions of dollars, but rather whether the government had actually faced any loss. And in that particular case, um, the contractor had performed the contract, the government had gotten the benefit of the contract and all the construction, and in fact, the company had actually lost money. So as a result, when you do the sentencing guidelines calculation, it was very much to the benefit of the executives who were sentenced. And that individual, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I think received under a year. Right. Uh, well, uh, 12 months and then 24 months, 12 months. Uh, supervised release. So does yeah. that, would that lead us to maybe speculate that if the um, – 
even if uh, there's a defraud under a federal contract, if the government receives the benefit or the value of that contract, that goes at least into the uh, sentencing or fine and forfeiture uh, calculation? Yeah, that's right. And actually, there's somewhat of a circuit split on that issue at this point. There are a couple of circuits in the past year who've ruled very favorably to defendants, the Ninth Circuit and I believe the Third Circuit up in Pennsylvania and now down here in D.C. at the district court level. Um, So finding that the loss amount is not based on the total amount of the contract, but rather uh, what the, the, uh, the loss to the government. Well, Lance Armstrong may want to contact you. <laughs> You've also got, some, I thought, some really interesting privileges, uh, privilege issues. And anytime FIFA pops up, it certainly uh, picks, pricks my interest. But you had uh, one uh, situation where a judge denied a common interest privilege in the FIFA case. Could you maybe explain what a common interest pr- privilege is and why uh, it was denied? Sure. I mean, the common interest privilege sometimes is called the joint defense privilege, although they're not always exactly overlapping. That would be same litigation when you have a common interest or uh, similar position to another party, and therefore you can establish a privileged relationship between the parties. So in the, in the joint defense context, that happens when litigation is either pending or anticipated, and you would be um, obviously not adversaries. You might be, say, uh, multiple defendants in the same case, for example. So uh, I have been involved in joint defense agreements. Um, I'd really never considered it in terms of a common interest privilege. Would you say that the, the common interest privilege is different enough or uh, um, that it really, uh, this case would not negatively impact a properly asserted joint defense privilege? Well, a joint defense privilege, I think I would consider a joint defense privilege a little bit more narrow because you're anticipating litigation or litigation is already at play. Common interest might just be um, litigation isn't out there and you feel that you have a similar interest, therefore you can establish a privilege. And I think courts are less receptive to that than when litigation is pending or anticipated. So, Lauren, there were two cases that uh, were referenced in the newsletter uh, which undermine privilege protections for executives, one in the United States and one in the uh, United Kingdom. And uh, I think everybody needs to pay attention to these because particularly the uh, Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority case where uh, a memo uh, concerning an interview an executive was compiled for a final investigative report, and yet that um, uh, interview memo was deemed not to be privileged for what I thought was a fairly basic reason that uh, there was no, uh, although there was threatened legal action, um, the uh, transit authority waited two years to hire outside counsel. So I was wondering if you just might kind of review what people need to do or executives or companies need to do to try to sustain that privilege. Sure. I think one thing to keep in mind when you're in an investigation, let's talk about that. I think that that's that's the most relevant, I think, to our topic here, is first to consider the jurisdiction you're in, because especially outside of the United States, 
privilege, attorney-client privilege, may not extend to in-house counsel. For example, in Europe, generally speaking, um, that's the case. So the privilege we know here that's much broader and extends not only to outside counsel but also to in-house counsel may not be the same there. So you need to be very, very clear in the beginning what is a privileged communication and who can you communicate with and maintain the privilege. So the second case, though, um, and really, I think, spoke to, to the point you raised was you, you must know the jurisdiction you're in. And perhaps this case would not surprise anyone that came out of the uh, United Kingdom where the Eurasian Natural Resources uh, uh, Corporation, which is under investigation by the Serious Fraud Office, had claimed that certain investigative documents were privileged. Uh, the SFA, they took the SFO to court and lost, and the court rejected the claim of privilege largely because uh, the investigation was not prepared for the, quote, sole or dominant purpose, end quote, of conducting an adversarial uh, investigation, uh, excuse me, litigation, and that the investigation was largely a fact-finding enterprise exercise. And that, I think, is something that uh, U.S. lawyers really need to, to focus in on, that, that even if you're doing an internal investigation based upon allegations which have bubbled up to you through, either through an uh, anonymous reporting line, tipster, or whatever the, the uh, mechanism might be, uh, it may not be enough to uh, keep your investigation uh, privileged, particularly the fact-finding part of it. Right, right, exactly. So, Lauren, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if uh, anyone wanted to uh, follow up with you on uh, any of the points you've raised in the memo or those that we didn't get to, because I will link to the uh, newsletter in the show notes. Um, could they email you? And if so, how would they do it? Absolutely. Yes, you can email me at lbriggerman at milchev.com. That's L-B-R-I-G-G-E-R-M-A-N at M-I-L-C-H-E-V dot com. Well, Lauren, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, now that I know about this great resource, I hope that I can uh, visit you with you on a quarterly basis uh, on some of the developments going forward because uh, my people really need to understand what your people are doing. Absolutely. We love that. And if I can't discuss or be an expert on a particular topic, I'd love to bring in my teammates. Uh, we have a great tax department that's tax lawyers who write the tax articles in here, the privilege experts, um, you know, it'd be great to get a panel together and talk with you on a quarterly basis. That would be great. Well, thank you. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As I indicated, I will link to the spring 2017 edition of Executives at Risk Navigating Individual Exposure in Government Investigations. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about one of the most prevalent podcasts in compliance. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join me again for our next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.